Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we celebrate together your greatness. We are evidence of your greatness and that you have redeemed our souls. You have rescued us from the miry clay of sin and set our feet upon our rock, Jesus Christ. You have performed a resurrection in the heart of every confessing believer in this place. Lord, when we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been resurrected to newness of life. Father, further evidence of your greatness is seen in our lives as you begin to transform us unto the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. When our desires begin to change and we love the things of you and hate the things of the flesh, the world, and the devil, we say praise to our God who is great and greatly to be praised. We recognize this morning your greatness in the world that you have created, though it suffers under, Lord, the debilitating effects of sin. Nevertheless, we see your creativity alive in the blooming of the springtime and the changing colors of the fall. And the metaphor of snow, which teaches us of your ability to cover our sins and to cleanse us white again. We celebrate your greatness this morning as we see in Scripture that every single event, person, place, and thing has been ordained by your sovereign plan for your great glory. And so from the beginning of time to the final resurrection, you have, Lord, all things in the power of your hand. And so we celebrate this morning, declare with Scripture of you and through you and to you are all things. And now as we turn our hearts to the great word of Jesus Christ our Lord who shared with us through these pages the message of the kingdom, we pray that you would open the eyes and ears of our understanding to the greatness of God delivered in the greatness of your gospel. We pray that you would help us Lord, to grow in faith and obedience as your word is preached to us today that we might add to uh, the track record of your faithfulness, Lord, more works to show the Spirit's activity in and through us, making good use of your word unto the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to celebrate this morning the work of Christ and to also set our attention on the Word of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22 will be our passage this morning. This is the occasion of questioning from the Pharisees when they sought to entangle Christ by asking Him a question about taxes. That is, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two factions, approach Christ seeking to get the upper hand and to discredit him in the eyes of the people. The result was surprising indeed for those who thought that they had a chance of derailing perfect wisdom. And we see evidence of the glory of God in Jesus Christ's answer when he befuddles the naysayers and the antagonists and uses this as yet another occasion to proclaim the truth of God's kingdom. So stand with me if you would. And let us read these verses together. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Here we have the immutable word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, 
Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you care about and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put, me to, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, I delivered to you a message from Matthew chapter 21, the previous chapter, verses 23 through 27, titled, How Jesus Argues. And it was another example documented in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus turns the intent to confuse him totally around and befuddles those who would like to trip him up in his words and again, as I said, to the crowds against him. When I preached that message, I declared to you that this was the quintessential example of this verse. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The world has its own understanding in its fallenness of wisdom. Yet this wisdom, from God's perspective, the perspective of truth, is absolute foolishness. But wisdom truly is personified in Christ. The book of Proverbs has as its theme an object metaphorically pictured and personified in many of its pages, wisdom itself. Wisdom is spoken of in the first person at times, or as a person at times, to declare to us what God's mind is like and what truth really looks like in stark contrast to the frail and fallen human mind. Our reasoning, our thinking has been corrupted by our sin. And thus the wisdom of God shows us our own foolishness when the black and white picture is shown the wisdom of Christ contrasted to the wisdom of man. In Proverbs eight fourteen through 16, this is one of those passages, and just a couple verses to cross-reference to our text today. This relates to wisdom as it relates to authorities. I have counsel and sound wisdom. This is wisdom speaking. I have insight. I have strength. Verse 15, by me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. With these two verses in mind and today's passage in view, we return our mind today to this text and we discover yet another example of Christ demonstrating the foolishness and the folly of worldly wisdom and catching the wise 
and their deception, deceiving intent and craftiness, seeking uh, Speaking of biblical wisdom personified in Christ, this passage from Proverbs 8, 15 through 16 is also relevant to the situation at hand. When we read, by me princes rule and nobles and all govern justly, or by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just, what are we reading? We are reading that Christ himself, the personification of wisdom, is the standard of truth, authority, justice, government. It is Him and Him alone that controls all areas of life and dictates what is true, wise, just, and demanded in all these circumstances. Our text today displays the wisdom of Christ deftly thwarting the hypocrites' attempts to entangle Him. And in this case, the hypocrites are two factions representing authorities and leadership of their day. The Herodians, that is, the political partisans, those who followed Herod, were agreed with him, the uh, political authority of the day, and the Pharisees, who themselves were in part a political uh, party at times, and in other ways, they were rulers of the people, religiously speaking. So our text today displays the wisdom of Christ, deftly defying both of these parties and any other who would stand to question him and to trip him up in his words. Instead of this, he leaves them befuddled and demands that they pay tribute to God. This exchange will eventually lead, that is, this back and forth between Jesus and the warring factions, this war of words eventually leads up to Matthew chapter 23, where Christ announces seven woes on factions such as these, and it is the strongest, most dramatic judgment language In all of the book of Matthew, I submit to you. Let me just say parenthetically, little philosophy of preaching that I try to abide by. I try to, as a rule, not make too much of a habit of directly debunking misuses of various texts. My approach is a little different. I try to do this anyway. I rather would prefer we focus our attention on what is contextually verifiable in the passages that we study on our Sunday time in the Word. What is contextually verifiable, thus the merits of each passage, we try to see them in light of what is self-disclosed, and the Word delivers to us on its own terms. Now this is intentional because there's a goal in this to equip the believer, equip the hearer to do his own debunking with an exposition-enhanced discernment. That is, if the word is delivered to you on its own terms, it equips you to rightly discern and exercise to distinguish good from evil, as Hebrews 5 instructs, so that you don't have to put out this fire of heresy and that fire of confusion and this uh, roadblock of misunderstanding and this postmodern corruption of the text. If you understand the Bible on its own terms, That is like a rising tide that lifts you out of the miry pitfalls of all this false understanding and equips you to do your own discerning. However, today's message may contain an exception or two to this practice simply because of the widespread misuse, what I judge to be the widespread misuse of this text. It is often cherry-picked, that is Matthew 22, 15 through 22, for ulterior motives. Oftentimes you'll see this text cited or hear it cited 
more, more so motivated not to understand it on its own terms, but to justify or to look for support for modern sensibilities inflamed by political questions and tensions. And thus, when we look for the Word of God to reinforce a political opinion we already have, what we tend to do, and we can do this in many ways, as we tend to stretch and twist the Scriptures and run it through the juicer of proof texting. And what comes out the other side is something mangled and tattered and not the clear authoritative Word of God. So this morning will be my attempt, and I hope with the Spirit's help I will be successful to help us understand some of this text on its own terms. What does this question of taxation and Jesus' answer really reveal to us? The heading of this morning's message under the title Tribute to God is the significance of taxation, the significance of the taxation question in light of three things. First, the confrontational context in Matthew 22 and Matthew 21. Secondly, understanding this taxation question in light of a gospel chain of events or the gospel's chain of events that are related to these moments. And then thirdly, the relationship that I believe Jesus declares between authority and obligation. So the confrontational context, a chain of events in this gospel, and the relationship between authority and and obligation. The title of this morning's message is Tribute to God. I submit to you that the main idea of this text is what man owes God. We sometimes are preoccupied with what we owe men or what we owe Caesar. That is a secondary question let me submit to you. What is far more important to us and what ought to grab our attention and cause us to dig deepest into Scripture is not what tribute that in this context the Jew would owe to Caesar under certain conditions, although in some secondary way that was certainly important to some degree for them, or in some secondary way what taxes we ought to owe our government today in this dying American republic as I judge it. But in fact, what is primary in view and what ought to control most of our concern in this text is this line, to God the things that are God's. We are to render to God the things that are God's. What is the tribute that God demands? What is tribute? Just a brief definition for you to help you understand the context here. Now the word tax in in the context of this passage refers to something like tribute or poll tax. A poll tax is money or duty owed to the government for the privilege of being a citizen in good standing. Perhaps other civil rights are attached like the right to vote. So you contribute your tax and you, have, and you retain your right to influence the system or vote. Now tribute is another idea, similar but can be different. Tribute is a representation of an authority to a subject. When money was minted with Caesar's image on it, whoever was the sovereign, it was a symbol of submission of a lesser people or a lesser faction or person or individual to a greater idea or body politic. So when someone would pay tribute, it was to give of their own means uh, in deference to the sovereign for protection or for privilege within their realm. So this is very important for us 
ultimately because God is our sovereign. What is stamped with the image of God that might compel us to bow to him? What of his revelation are we privy to that ought to compel our need to bow and to say, long live the king of kings? That might move us to understand that he is our authority and our sovereign, and so we give of our means and our livelihood unto him in service of his kingdom. I submit to you again, this is the main idea, and hopefully that question can be answered in part as we move through the text. First of all, let's consider the confrontational context, and in so doing, hopefully shed light on the significance of this taxation question. Move back with me to Matthew 21, 23, and you will see a similar scenario that we've covered already in prior weeks. It says, and when he had entered the temple, notice two factions came to him. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So again, what is the question on the table? Authority. Who are the parties that approach Christ? Chief priests and elders. Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25. Here is the loaded question that Jesus uses to confound the wisdom of the wise. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And as we mentioned before, this was their cowardly response, and Jesus undid them with this approach. And he said to them, and to 27, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So do you see how these, the wisest and most conniving of human authorities and factions in that day, were just like putty in the hand of Christ? He, with a simple question, derailed their attempt to incite a riot against him. It was the hope of these parties that, based on how he answered this question, this group over here would take up stones to kill him because of one thing or another, that he's, or because of the way he answered, or this group over here would do it. In other words, they wanted to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place to incite a riot against him, and in so doing, to remove him as a threat to what? Their authority. Jesus represented a threat to their authority. And so, thus ensued this war of words. The powers that be of this day, where Jesus, of, of that day when Jesus walked the earth, were uh, standing in an adversarial position against him. And we, we've seen that already. But notice how Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, is turned around in the context of our passage this morning. Verse 15 of chapter 22 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, in his talk. And um, I, sh- I should apologize. I, I, uh, I mixed up two situations. This is actually the context with which they provide Jesus a scenario with, in which, uh, with which, depending on how he answered, would incite the crowds against him before Jesus actually did it to them. 
In verse 16 it says, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And then here's their question, 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so with the way they frame the question, depending on how Jesus answered, they expect that those who despise the fact that they pay tribute to this occupying power will say, will rise up in defiance of Christ and his support of Rome's right to tax and to uh, destroy him in a zealot rage. Or if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then the expectation is that Rome itself or the uh, civil authorities will put him down as an insurrectionist that might lead a rebellion against them. Where did they get this idea? Where did the enemies of Christ, in this case the Pharisees and the Herodians, get this idea to put Jesus in this kind of position? They stole it from Christ. It was the exact thing that he did to them. And instead of giving the cowardly, I don't know, Jesus answers the question. And they can't believe it. They're stumped. We just put this irreconcilable situation before him. Before him, somehow he answered him and answered us and didn't incite a riot. Whereas before, when Jesus asked them, is the baptism of John from men or from God, they had neither the courage nor the wisdom to thread that needle. They couldn't answer. So do you see how this is shaping up? This is the context of confrontation. This is a war of words. This is an assault on Christ with words, with rhetoric. These same people with the same heart would eventually assault Christ in a false trial. And they would do it through a proxy means, through the conviction of a pagan government of this man, through a crown of thorns, through an instrument of torture, through the cross. These factions, these authorities are making war on Christ in this section. This is a war of words. And they are fighting him. Now, this is, it doesn't just end there. This, our text today is the first of three similar situations. In chapter 22, 23, it says the same day Sadducees came to him. Who are the Sadducees? Well, they were similar to the Pharisees, but differed on a few things. And they were, again, in some ways it could be defined as a political party, in other ways spiritual leaders. They sought to have influence over the people and retained a lot of it. They saw Christ as a threat. They came to Christ as well. They were the ones who say there is no resurrection. What did they uh, have uh, for Christ? It says, teacher, verse 24, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. They lay out this situation, several marriages, and then the question, uh, whose wife will she be in after the resurrection? So what are they trying to do? They're trying to trip Jesus up with another question. And then third try at cross-examination is in chapter 22, 34, when the Pharisees, again, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they figured, well, we'll try again. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, so this guy figures he of all of them is, is smart enough to trip Christ up. He asked him a question again to do what? To test him. The same motive that is given in our text. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law, he asks. In each one of these cases, there is not a sincere desire for truth. They are not seeking information about the kingdom of God. 
They are not submitting to Christ as a teacher of righteousness, as a prophet, as a Messiah. No, not at all. In each case, they are coming to him with their words to destroy him. And this is a confrontational context. Notice also that there are two factions that come to Christ. Uh, One faction represents the Pharisees in uh, chapter 22, 15, and another faction represents the Herodians. Now, just to demonstrate uh, Christ's prophetic ability and His perfect wisdom, I'd like to cross-reference Mark 18 quickly, where Jesus had anticipated these types of situations and already warned of them. Using uh, bread as an analogy, in Mark chapter 8, 14, it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. Verse 15, He, that is Christ, cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. This is incredible. Jesus knew that just like leaven, ideas, philosophies, perspectives, orientation, presuppositions of these two factions, those represented by their allegiance to Herod and those who are aligned with the Pharisees, they would corrupt, if they could, people with their ideas. And they would destroy the Christ, if they could, with what they thought was superior wisdom. Jesus said, beware of this leaven. He himself was aware of it. And when the opportunity came, and when the conflict arose, he defeated them with his wisdom and his declaration of truth. Let me remind you as well that these two parties, again, represent two authority, two branches or spheres of authority. One, generally speaking, ecclesiastical or church-related. That would be the Pharisees. And the second, the civil sphere, the Herodians. That, again, is similar to Matthew 21. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders. Again, the elders were like the judges, the magistrates, commissioned to mediate, to arbitrate, and to judge in civil matters and disputes. So again, the chief priests and the elders, let me remind you, Christ, for all time at this time and today, represents an authority challenge both to civil government and to religious ideas. Christ is Lord of all. And every knee of every individual must bow, and every knee of institutions and society must also bow to him. And this is what is in view, and we see it clearly in the confrontational context. Let me make one other point along these lines before moving to a gospel chain of events. And that is hypocritical entrapment. Jesus sees right through their scheme, and we'll read this later, but in Luke chapter 19... Or I believe, it is clear that those who come, they're identified in that parallel account, or Luke chapter 20, they're identified in that parallel account as spies. So when we read in Matthew 22 that they sent their disciples to him, it's more than just followers who uh, were uh, sent as agents, but they were in fact spies. This is a deceitful attempt to trip up Christ. And so when they came, the first thing that they said was disingenuous Complete flattery. This is lying through their teeth. This is absolutely hypocritical. Though on the face of it, it is true. Listen to what they say in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion. 
for you are not swayed by appearances. Do you see how they are setting the table? They do not believe a word that I just spoke to you. They don't believe that Jesus speaks the truth. They don't believe that he is swayed by appearances. They think in light of their question, they can trip him up. Who do they think is, represents truth? Who do they think ought to retain authority? Themselves. And this is a total fabrication, and it is total hypocrisy, and it's meant to put Jesus in the dock, to trip him up, to test him and to try him. Jesus sees right through their scheme, and he says as much and calls them out to their face. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, aware that is of their criminal intent, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? You do not believe what you just said. You are putting on a show. You are putting on pretentious flattery to coax me into a situation to test the Lord of glory. If we are so lacking in the fear of God that our approach to Christ is something akin to this, what do we deserve? Do we retain leverage anymore today? Or do any of the naysayers or those who try to put Christ to the test retain any kind of leverage before God? When they question and skeptically criticize Him and try to, with tough questions and ethical dilemmas, defy or deny the Word of Christ? Absolutely not. This section is going to lead up to a proclamation of judgment for those who would seek in their hypocrisy to entrap Christ and to say, Ha! I got you, Christian. Ha! The Bible's full of contradictions. Ha ha! How do you explain this one? That kind of attitude will be met with the stern face of the judge of all heaven and earth one day condemning those who would say such things to a place as Christ has just declared, that Christ has just declared of outer darkness, 2213, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who are called from the many and chosen. They humbly accept the robes, the wedding garments, the righteousness of Christ, and they come to the wedding on His terms. If they seek to come through the door and hypocritically entrap Christ, they will find Him to be justified in His words in their own judgment, eventually, if not sooner than later. Secondly, the significance of the taxation question in light of a gospel chain of events. Now, this incident right here figures into a progression of important narrative details in the book of Matthew and in the greater context of the Gospels. So I'm going to lead you through just a few passages to kind of thread the theme in this story as we see it with a few reference points. In Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, we read the following. It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against him, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said. Listen to this. So as to deliver him up 
to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the parallel passage I mentioned to you before from Luke chapter 20. These scribes and chief priests, they sent spies, and they sent them to pretend to be sincere, that they might catch Christ in something He said. And here's their ultimate goal. They sought to deliver Him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. The next passage, Matthew 26. Jesus asked for a denarius, which is one day's wages, and it was a minted silver coin with the image of Caesar on it. A small amount of silver that was used as a medium of exchange. In Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, pieces of silver are again in view in the narrative context of Matthew's gospel. It says you'll be familiar with this. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, they sought opportunity to betray him. So we see in these details the significance of the intent of Jesus' adversaries and the role that pieces of silver played. And Luke 20, 19 through 20, the preface of this event in its parallel passage in Luke shows us that the powers that be at this time are attempting to render Christ unto Caesar. They are attempting to deliver him over to give Christ into the hands of the powers of the civil government. Again, they sought to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Uh, Again, in Matthew 26, we see how this plays out, begins to play out. In this case, the similar if not same denomination, a similar if not same denomination of money, that is 30 small pieces of silver, is negotiated as a reward for Jesus' betrayal. So we see here in this gospel chain of events that this is a foreshadowing of the circumstances of Jesus' betrayal. The adversaries of Christ were looking for an opportunity to deliver him over to Caesar. And instead of rendering Caesar the poll tax, uh, there would be one among them who would receive uh, who would receive money, pieces of silver, in exchange for Jesus. And he would then be rendered over to Caesar for the cost of 30 small pieces of precious metal. Money. Second in the gospel chain of events, Jesus' own prophecy. In Matthew 23, verses 29 through 36, Jesus, on the heels of this war of words, pronounces the following among his woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves. Again, 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. 
You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus prophesies these woes, these judgments over the factions that had made war with him with their words. And this exchange, the one that we are studying in Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22, this exchange was going to be actually the fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy here in Matthew 23 that the hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees would testify against themselves. When did this happen in the record? Well, as we move forward, uh, we'll see in a moment that that indeed happened in Luke 23. But before we get there, Jesus continues with a record in his prophecy of what soon would befall this generation. In Matthew 24, he proclaims the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says in verse uh, 2, Truly I say to you, there will be not left here, speaking of the temple, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So in this chain of events, uh, Jesus' prophecy demonstrates that there was going to be a, self, a, a self-defeating testimony and self-incriminating testimony that the hypocrites would demonstrate and there would also be a destruction uh, that would come upon them. That is to say, in Matthew 24, Rome itself, the occupying force, the oppressor that was levying tribute upon them, would itself be a pawn in God's sovereign hand to bring destruction upon this generation. Are you starting to get the picture that there is far more going on here than just a question of to, to whom and how much ought I pay taxes? There is a narrative here in the testimony of the gospel that supersedes the immediate question and demonstrates God's sovereignty and word and control over this situation in transcendent ways. And then the third in this chain of gospel events is Jesus' trial itself. So turn with me to Luke 23, and we'll see how these events play out. In spite of the naysayers' attempts to trip him up, even in the war they made with him with their words, the very things that they stated come up to defy them, to call them liars, and to incriminate them later. This is absolutely amazing. Again, 1 Corinthians 3.19, God confounds the wisdom of the wise and shows it to be absolute folly. Notice how this happens even at Jesus' trial. Luke 23, verses 1 and 2. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Here they are. They're delivering Christ. They're rendering him over to the civil authority. Verse 2, and they began to accuse him. That is, they began to accuse Christ, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, 
a king. Wow. Do you see how they testified against themselves? An utter fabrication. They tried to press this question on Jesus, and he said, whose inscription is on this coin, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Later, in self-incriminating testimony, these false witnesses said that Christ forbid them to pay tribute to Caesar. They are absolutely tripped up in their words. The very thing they tried to use to trip up Christ testified against them at his trial. This man was Lord of glory, God in flesh, the only innocent man who ever lived. And the false accusers were double-minded, foolish, folly, schizophrenic in their accusation of Christ. And it was so apparent, so apparent. Jesus had absolutely tied them into knots. This exchange in Matthew 22 becomes a testimony against them as they falsely accuse Christ of opposing Caesar's tribute. We read further of Jesus' trial in John 19. Turn there quickly if you would. And again, the clash of authorities is evident. The theme of authority and who Christ represents, who Caesar represents, comes up even in his trial. In John 19, 10 through 16, we read, So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus' very life on the surface seems to be in the, in the fated hands of this one civil magistrate. But he teaches them the truth. He teaches him, Pilate, the truth that even your authority as an agent of imperial Rome is derivative. It would be nothing unless it was granted to you providentially by God himself. And Jesus says, therefore, listen to this, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the Sadducees, the wicked, mad mob, they were the ones who were turning Christ over to Caesar, and they had the greater sin. And notice what they were willing to confess, where they were willing to stand in order to make this judgment call against Christ. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, see the irony here, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out. And now even Pilate's getting in on the act. He's inciting this crowd. They are about to respond with rabid, confused rage, incriminating themselves again. And the civil authority is actually doing this alongside what Christ has already done. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 
The gospel chain of events illustrates this clash so profoundly. And we see what's going on here, do we not? This is more of a question of what is to be delivered to Caesar. Some little pittance of a tax that you actually owe to Caesar due to the judgment that you are under because you are unfaithful and I raised up in my hand someone to conquer you. Confess your sins and be restored. Repent and be a nation again. But until you do, you better pay this tax because you are under the thumb of God's judgment. God had raised up Assyria. God had raised up Babylon. And their political systems were fraught with all kind of idolatrous paganism. They were not justified in their governmental structures. Their polity was not endorsed by Christ in that even though they were used as an instrument of judgment for God's people against God's people, No, they were a hammer in his hand to bring on the just desserts of those who were most privileged among all nations who had the very oracles of God. And they're in the situation again. And they, in their self-importance without repenting, and in their zealot rage, despised that they had to pay tribute to Rome. Deliver us from that Messiah, if you're really the Messiah. He had come to deliver them from their hypocrisy, from their self-worship, and their duplicitousness, and they would not repent. The message of the kingdom was repent. You won't be delivered from Rome until you're delivered from your sin. And the tribute that you owe him is nothing compared to the debt you owe to Almighty God, whose word you have spurned and whose Messiah you have rejected. So they... Instead of delivering over in submission to God's judgment over them, the pittance of tribute, what did they deliver over to Caesar? They delivered over Christ himself. And you know what they were willing to confess to do so? We have no king or authority over us except Caesar. And they said that to justify their delivering Christ into the hands of the civil magistrate to be killed. We go back to our text today, Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. After answering Jesus' question that Caesar's image appeared on the coin, then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. What was the tribute that this people, that all peoples owe to God? That is the primary question. When we look at a text like this, Now, here comes the debunking the false ideas part I mentioned at the beginning. When we look at a text like this, let us consider this very important point of exegesis or understanding it on its own terms. Jesus, how does Jesus answer the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus answers the question with reference to what? Does Jesus answer the question with reference to Universal standards of just taxation? I submit to you, no. Though often this passage is stripped mind to justify universally the taxation and the obeisance to the civil government. This is not the passage you go to to establish that, let me submit. Does Jesus answer this question with, universal, with reference to the universal obligation of citizens under civil authority? All citizens are obligated Uh, to obey the civil government under these terms, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not the point of reference here. 
Thirdly, a question I've heard all of these ad nauseum in various snippets through the years. Is Jesus, in, in answering this question, is he answering it in reference to a promotion of pluralistic tolerance of pagan governments who are not beholden to God's law? And that, to me, is perhaps one of the most egregious misuses of this text. To go to this text to say, oh, uh, pagan governments who don't bow to Christ are perfectly legitimate. You see, even Jesus endorsed the taxation that Caesar levied without question of whether or not this society, this government, this civil authority obeyed God's law. No. That's an egregious misuse. Let me submit to you. Jesus answers this question with reference to something else indeed. Immediately, it's with reference to the underhanded attempt to entrap him. He is foiling their attempts to tie him into knots. Now, secondly, as I submitted to you before, he's answering this with reference to Rome as the instrument of God's judgment. But ultimately, he's answering this question with reference to tribute owed to God. Tribute owed to Caesar is a funny little footnote. It's secondary. It's not primary. The real issue here is what do we owe God? Christ versus Caesar. These factions were seeking to deliver Christ over to Caesar. All the while, they were beholding God incarnate. You see, Jesus held up a, a, a denarius and said, whose image is on this? And everybody clearly recognized what that coin represented. But do you know what they were blind to? Even though it emanated from his teaching, from his prophecy, from his miracles, from his wonders, from even in this moment, his attempts or his uh, completely befuddling their their efforts to trip him up. Do you know what they were blind to? They were blind to the imprint of the nature of Almighty God incarnate in front of them. Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The crowds that were opposing Christ were blind to the image, the exact imprint, to God in flesh, of the nature of God, the radiance of the glory of God, manifest in the flesh in Christ. They could understand with their physical eyes that that image of Caesar meant that they were in submission to an occupying force, but in their sin they were blind to revelation incarnate speaking to them in the flesh. And if they had recognized the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, they would have cried out, What tribute do I owe to God? I give you everything. I bow before you. I leave house and home and business and occupation and dreams and associations and relationships to follow you, my Master, my Messiah. This is Jesus we're talking about here. And that was really what is in view. This text is not focused on taxes. It's about Christ's image. Christ's image uh, that was available for the people to see. If we recognize that Caesar stamps uh, his image on the medium of exchange, and that is representative of his supremacy over occupied lands, 
What do you suppose is the obligation of those who behold the radiance of the glory of God walking among them? This is the relationship between authority and obligation. Civil governments, to some degree, have authority. And to that degree, we have an obligation to them. But to superlative, infinitely greater degree is the authority of Jesus Christ. What is our obligation to Him? Let's close with an application. Are we guilty of betraying Christ or selling Him out because we recognize ourselves or any earthly authority or any civil government as a more compelling representation of authority than God in flesh. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we behold Him today in His Word. May we offer Him the tribute He deserves. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not be so blind in the sinfulness of our wicked heart and our clouded vision that we would take too lightly the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of His nature, the radiance of the glory of God, and the preservation of revelation in Your Holy Word that calls us to account. May we hear the summons to the wedding feast and leave all else behind. Put on the robes of Christ's righteousness not turn to any other way, any other desire, any other authority, but simply say, Jesus is Lord, that we may render unto God the tribute He deserves, having recognized His authority over every tribe, tongue, nation, people, over all history. And we thank You, Lord, for the truth that You rule and reign. And we declare again, of You and through You and to You, are all things. In the name of Jesus, amen.